love your beard. Hey, oh man. Oh man. I've never seen you with a beard I'll before. Get that looks really good. It's so beardy. Um, I'm a little surprised. Well, so if I say so, so was our dean of the I'm College honest. of Visual and Performing Arts. Uh, he apparently <laughs> hasn't seen me in a little while because I waved to him on campus, and as he got uh, closer, he did, he didn't acknowledge me. But then I turned to go into the music building, and as we got closer, he's like, "Is that Andrew?" And I said, "Yes, it is." He said, "Have you always had a beard?" <laughs> <laughs> one of my one of my colleagues at App State was like, you look like a student, and just, like, didn't see me as a faculty member. Like, this was, like, a week ago, two weeks ago. The plight of the young professor. That's true. Yeah. That's very true. Well, I have, like, I have stories out the wazoo. Let's just skip that part. <laughs> should, we get, should we get started? Yeah, yeah. I think we'll we restart. should. Well, welcome, everyone, to Overdrinks. Uh, and, uh, we, ha- we have our usual hashtag bad beer, Andy with Woo! us, hashtag poor, li- poor life choices, Smith. I get two hashtags. I love this. You definitely get two hashtags. And of course, uh, w- I shouldn't say with him as always, but I, you know, Wayne's world is coming into my mind with him as always is Garth, but <laughs> with, with him, so. <laughs> no, not at all with him. Is Jamie Lee Sampson, and welcome to the Composer Collective, Garrett Schumann. Woohoo! Yay! Hello. Hello. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm really only agreed to join Adjective in order to be on this podcast. <laughs> well, you fulfilled it in almost no time, so. This is like the Chapo Trap House of new music podcasts, and I'm really honored to be on it, so. Because Elon Musk has smoked weed on this podcast, too, right? <laughs> I don't think we have an over-high series. That's but... fair and appropriate. <laughs> okay. Um, All right. Anyway, Here we are. <laughs> so since it is an over-drinks, let's just get right to the drinks. What is everyone drinking tonight? Whew. Wine. <laughs> Finally. Wine. Wine. Andrew, I really want to know. Well, okay. Uh, well, so, no, no, let's let's save. Let's let's, let's save. just save. Right, let's save right, the weird right, one for James, right, Jamie. Right. Jamie, <laughs> Jamie, you you said wine. What? Uh, you I know, said wine. More details. I have uh, the nineteen crimes red blend because it's sweet enough for Andrew to drink, and yet I'm gonna I'm gonna tank this bottle tonight. <laughs> nice. Because you know it's finals week. <laughs> I was just about to say, when did your semester end? <laughs> Not um, yet. Tomorrow morning at ten thirty. <laughs> All right. Well, you'll be God you'll be ready for it. Jamie. Yeah, we'll definitely be. <laughs> Garrett, what are you drinking? So I have two. Um, because I'm back in Michigan, I have, and because our piece is composed by a Russian composer, I have a. Bell's Expedition Stout, which is a Russian Imperial Stout. Mm. But following that up, I'm very excited to tell the story behind my second beer. So on my way driving from North Carolina to Michigan, from Appalachian State, where I teach to Michigan, where I prefer to live, (laughs) um, I stopped in a Wendy's parking lot in Lexington, Kentucky, to do a beer swap with someone that I know in Lexington, Kentucky. And I got this, it is called West Sixth Brewing. It is a imperial bourbon barrel imperial stout called Snakes in a Barrel. And so that will be my beer number two. But how many beers have you all had that uh, you got 
in a Wendy's parking lot and off in the highway. I, I can say none. Kentucky. Yeah. Oh, Kentucky. This was Kentucky, Apologies. but I'll take any Wendy's parking lot. Okay. Mm. <laughs> none. Um, yeah, none is I our mean, answer. We got our dog in a Taco Bell parking lot in Missouri. <laughs> oh, jeez, Rob. What? <laughs> yeah. It was, I mean, we were, that was right after I graduated from undergrad. We were moving out to Tucson, and we just thought we'd pick up a dog on the way. That's funny. It was, a, obviously, it was a beagle breeder in Missouri that we, okay. you know, paid. It wasn't just like, hey, dogs for sale, mm-hmm. you know. Well, this, I got this beer from someone I had only ever met on Twitter, so that <laughs> nice. makes it even better. Magic. That's like, suffice it to say, one step up My, from Craigslist. Well, yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah, there might be a morality or a cautionary tale here by the end of this, so stay tuned, <laughs> folks. Ooh, what a great forward promo. <laughs> if, we lo- if we lose Garrett by the end, we'll know. We'll know. I'll have the shortest tenure of any adjective music member. <laughs> I mean, technically never a member. Seriously, Rob. Yeah, no, I think I think we we've got you beat on a couple of of. Well, maybe we'll see. I guess we'll see. If I if I die tonight, I don't know. <laughs> Come on. Anyway, um, <laughs> all right. Uh, I have. Uh, you guys were. Um, we were. Jamie and Andrew. They were here when I tried out this uh, for the first time, and I really like it. Yeah. This wasn't part of our six pack, but it was the beer that was that I drank on the other nights. Uh, when you guys were mm-hmm. here, it's Revolution Brewing. It's called Eugene. It's a robust porter. It's really freaking good, guys. Um, I have been Ooh, enjoying it. Nice. So it it warrants getting out a glass, you know, yes. as, as opposed to drinking it from the can. Fair. And it it's it's dark beer season. It is. Yeah. Mm. I think Andrew would probably disagree. Well, things I didn't know. Well, Andrew has a game for all of you. I do actually have a game for (laughs) for all of you. Uh, And it's partly inspired by you, Rob, and your (laughs) your, um, multiple selections that we had on on the last Overdrinks, what I believe is going to be the the Overdrinks that precedes this. Probably. Um, So I I have three beers here with me right now. Literally what we had in the fridge this morning. And seriously, (laughs) three random beers that we had in the fridge in the back. Uh, They are for right now, all intents and purposes, beer one, two, and three. So Rob McClure, out of beer one, two, and three, and Garrett, don't worry, you'll get to choose in a a little while. Uh, Which beer am I drinking first, Rob? Number two. Number two. I really hoped, no, I legitimately hoped you'd say this. Okay, so in the back of the fridge, <laughs> we had this imported beer from what looks like Italy. Oh. Uh, oh, so, no. do they make beer? Uh, well, I'm I'm holding an artifact. <laughs> Molto bene. Uh, Bira Moretti. So, uh, yeah, it's authentica, and a recipe since 1859. Clearly, this has got some longevity. Pre-unification. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so friends of ours brought this over for a pizza dinner, and they moved away at least six months ago, so I have no idea when this was from. I don't know. So. What, I don't know what you're talking about. I uh, mean... It has a... Okay. It has a smell. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Italy's so famous for its beer. Yeah, that's uh, awful. Okay. <laughs> it, great. 
<laughs> is there any is it meant is it is it a flavor or something or is it just supposed to be beer flavored beer but it's just bad <laughs> well it's i mean you are drinking it cold maybe it's supposed to be served warm may, uh, uh, yeah yeah <laughs> N- 98.6 degrees warm i think um uh well yeah there's a flavor it's like it's like <laughs> it's like bad miller light no, I meant like you usually tend towards the blueberries and strawberries. No, it's and, just, and just and white chocolate. There's no, beer, this, beer. Is, this is beer flavored beer. Yep. Uh, just bad beer just, flavored beer. Oh, I'm, well, I'm so excited about this bad drink. Poor life choices Smith strikes again. <laughs> yep. The saga continues. <laughs> well, all right. Well, you'll have to let us know when you're when you're ready for number two yeah at this rate it might uh, be sooner than later so well i guess right mm. or, or rather number one or number three mm-hmm. choices to to uh to pick from but anyway let's get to the piece we're going to talk about and since um since garrett is a new member to the collective and since we did your podcast episode like back way back in the 30s i think um i can't episode 37 oh well you come prepared i don't (laughs) um we decided like not to do another solo episode for you to introduce you to the podcast since you had already been introduced and i didn't think you were going to give me a different answer for you know the big question at the end so we figured well let's have garrett on for an over drinks and you chose the piece that we that we listened to and we're going to talk about so why don't you tell us what is that piece and why did you choose it? So I chose uh, a piece by Sofia Gubaidalina, uh, who was one of my favorite composers, uh, not a composer that you had talked about already. Nope. And it occurred to me that she has a unusual connection to not just me, but two other previous guests on lexical tones, Jessica Redman and Angelica Negron, because uh, Sofia Gubaidalina was the guest composer at the session of the EMA program that oh. Angelica, Jessica, and I all attended like in 2008 or something like that. That's cool. Yeah, I will say that I totally did not appreciate having her as like a masterclass composer at the time, but I sense... In the last 10 years, I've really come to realize how special of an experience that was. And this, I was trying to think of, like, really new pieces I had heard. And this is something that I heard for the first time in the last year that's probably the, my favorite thing that I've listened to. That's not, like, Meshuggah or something like that. <laughs> and um, and so I wanted to talk about, like, to me... I. For me and my sensibility, this is like a perfect piece. So I actually have 10 reasons why I think it's perfect for my sensibility. Oh man, he came prepared. (laughs) He really did, man. (laughs) What I I was hoping, like, I I want us to talk about the piece, and Sophia Gubaidalina I think is kind of an underappreciated composer. Um, But I also hope that we end up talking about, like, how we... to think about how we feel about pieces and think critically about our response to pieces and how like our response to pieces intersects with what we do as creators or teachers or performers or, you know, cause we have, we have different modes of in- interacting with music. And so, uh, yeah, I spent some time thinking about that surprise. <laughs> so, um, man, 
because I also, like I said in my email, like I reckon this piece is from 1978. Yeah. Like yeah. It, it definitely, in many respects, sounds like a piece that is from 1978. Um, but at yeah, the same time, at the same time, um, though, this is this is a kind of weird concerto for her. This this mm-hmm. to me it was only oh, her second, it right? Was yeah. Her second, yeah, preceded only by the bassoon concerto for low strings. And is this a favorite of Rob's? I see a whole lot of hands in the air there. No, I just it was you know bassoon and bassoon yeah, and, you know, and, and yeah. I, don't, I don't celebrating. I don't know whether I don't know if Garrett knows this, and Rob made me wait until this moment on the podcast. But um, she started telling, she started saying it in a different chat, and I was like, save it for the podcast. <laughs> um. Yeah, so after after my book on bassoon multiphonics was published, I got a tattoo of one of the multiphonics from the bassoon concerto tattooed on my on my wrist. Oh, I think you've told me this. Okay, I we, I couldn't remember. But... I was like, you know, people often look at my wrist and go, "What the f- is that?" And I'm like, "Oh, it's just mm-hmm. music." And and they get confused. And the musicians are like, "But what is it?" And I'm like, oh, it's before rehearsal five in the first movement of Gubitalina's bassoon concerto for bassoon and low strings. And they're like, well, okay, never mind. Um, it's, it's <laughs> Sorry, I asked. It's exactly, exactly. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, definitely. So, so I, I listening to that one, and then the well, not then the piano concerto was the highlight of my listening list this week, and I thought it was a really a, a big oddity in her set of concerti and so i went through and mm-hmm. listened to the openings of the bassoon concerto and um and tempest praises and tempest praises yeah. and offertorium and mm-hmm. this one is just very different and i found it mm-hmm. i find it really interesting that it's your favorite so uh so do you have is like point number one like why it's your favorite well, <laughs> or it's is not that point it's... one through ten <laughs> It's not that it's my favorite of all of her concerti, mm. but it's just to me as a listener, it's a perfect piece. Okay, so okay, you've said that twice now. I'm uh, gonna throw to Andrew. Uh huh. Because 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 I, <laughs> well, I think Garrett Garrett has listened to this podcast before, so he probably knows what's coming next. And of course, this grades against my very soul because I don't wow. I don't believe there is such a thing as perfect music. So I'm really excited about these ten reasons um, uh, to to describe and perhaps convince me that that this is uh, this is an, a candidate for perfection. Well, it's it's perfect for for, for you. Me. I like understand. It, it presses. <laughs> It presses my buttons. Like a lot of people talk about how they, you know, at their funeral, they want to have like a playlist of their favorite music Mm. for like people to listen to, to celebrate them through, which for me, it's going to be very long and also (laughs) music nobody else likes. But this would like be on there because it it just does so many things that I really, really, really love. Well, I assume this was going to be this and Meshuga, right? And just like it would be. (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. And we would find an 0134 tetrachord in both examples. So that's point number nine on the the list of ten. I think think every time they they mention a... A set class, you and I should drink. This will be our drinking game for the night. <laughs> Who, me? Yes, you. <laughs> okay. On cool. my Lexical Tones episode, Rob... Oh, I schooled you. 
he he was like because the piece i shared had a set and rob was like yeah it's like blah 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 don't you know that and i was like yeah, I don't, I don't know about that. That's well, it was, really how I was thinking about it. It was, uh, well, let's see, it was the, it was the Balinese pent, uh, pentatonic N- scale or something. No, it was no, it wasn't that. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it that's, was. That, no. Well, or was it? I don't think so. Well, that I yes, mean, yes, it was. It was okay. What? It, it was uh, zero. I don't remember. Yeah. Yes, you do. It was. Zero one three seven eight. So it's kind of that's what it was. The all interval tetrachord plus an extra half step. Maybe. Yeah, but that know. that pentatonic scale is uh, is it? I'm pretty sure it's the ball. Is it Balinese or Javanese? I can't remember. Um, mm, I'm sure there's really no big difference between those two enormous. There islands. is. There's a huge difference. There's also a, there's a huge difference in Italian beer and uh, and other things. And Italian wine. Yes, there is there's a there is a striking difference between those two things. The way I was drinking Australian. Well, wine. all right. Either either way. Either way. I mean, so sh- I'll I'll just uh, throw throw in my two cents about Goodbye Delina. I think I realized that when I listened to this piece. This might be the first Goodbye to Lena piece I've heard beginning to end. Really? And it might be the first Goodbye to Lena piece I've ever heard. Rob! Whoa! I'm sorry! I didn't even clip yelling at you. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm sorry, but there are a lot of composers out there and you can't hit all of them. Yeah, yeah no, that's but, true. Okay. That's, that's fair. But seriously, I got all... Like, serious, flat-out bitchy in one episode of Lexical Tones because I was like, there are people who argue that women can't control large form, and if there's anybody who can absolutely mm. discredit that, it's fucking Guvadalina. And you haven't... Yep. Oh, my so, God. The, ma- the master Question, class is she- this glass two? Yes. Of wine? Yes. Yes. This is going to be a legendary episode. <laughs> I told him I should have no. brought the second bottle up. It's been a hard day, okay? Uh, so, I, Garrett, Garrett, you were saying. Well, I was going to say, uh, J- Jamie, you're totally right. Like, in her master class with us, all she did was show us her architectonic, mm. like, plans and stuff. I mean, she's very... I know in previous... A previous episode of this, like... Rob was talking about wanting to hear, like, the struggle or the effort in a piece or Mm. something like that. And, I mean, she's had a very complicated life, but also she works really hard. Like, Mm -hmm. her her planning, her pre-composition is is out of control. Like, these very precise um, drawings, a lot of it's based on the Fibonacci Mm -hmm. numbers that... I don't, I mean, that's not really something I hear, but I think you can hear in this piece, like, I think the form is one of the most incredible parts of, of, of the piece. It's just so perfectly um, laid out in my mind. So, mm-hmm. so can I have to say, I, I love that everything that you just said in terms of the, not only the Fibonacci numbers, but also these kinds of, of, uh, of replicating kinds of numerical progressions and things that are related to proportion and structure, very much a part of her, uh, of her oeuvre. Um, but the thing that I find most humorous at the moment is Rob McClure trying desperately to remember <laughs> if that's what he said in terms of struggle. I don't think it was, but... <laughs> 
But I know which podcast that came from, and I know why I'm having trouble remembering it. Oh. So it was, um, the, it was the round table. Yes, it yeah. was. Yeah, there's was that one. That was a good one. It was uh, keeps a good coming one. up. So, so I, I have. So I don't. I don't. I don't want to necessarily derail our discussion of the piece, um, but but I think since we're talking about Gubaidulina and and her uh, kind of her compositional aesthetic, maybe and style, and the fact that this might be the first piece that that Rob has heard of hers, let alone the first piece yeah. in it in, in kind of totality, um, I want to bring up this this review, uh, and so I'll do it now before I get too many beers in. So it comes from this uh, 2007. Um, uh, Guardian article, and it was written by Tim Ashley, uh, who uh, is a, a opera critic and a, a Strauss scholar, among other things. But I, I see the I see the faces. Hold on, this is a discussion point, okay? Um, so the thing, There's no face, the thing, what that, face, Garrett, not you, Garrett. There's oh. two of you. <laughs> so, so here's a, here's what might um, what might be interesting for us to talk about here for the next few minutes. Quote. And this is the opening. Quote, The more one listens to Sofia Gubaidulina's music, the less one likes of it. Such disenchantment comes, it should be added, from hearing it in quantity. Performed in isolation, her works are often give the impression of stark originality, however placed end-to-end as it was in this year's BBC Composer Weekend, they revealed startling limitations of emotional range. And now, 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 hold, now, hold on. Now, I see, I, yeah, I know. Uh, but, but I do feel that Ashley's approach here is to be a little inflammatory at the beginning to, to kind of uh, circle around and, and talk her up. So this is the, not an original idea you've had. Oh, the, um, the, right, exactly. The, it's meta. Um, so the review, the review is largely favorable. The review is largely favorable of her work, but I find that opening to be really intriguing because I, my immediate reaction was, dude, what the hell? I absolutely love Gubai Dulina's music. And then I thought to myself, I've never actually heard her pieces and I've never heard a, a collection of several of her pieces end to end as he's describing. So I really don't know. Thoughts? Mm. Well, I, I haven't heard her like a series of her pieces mm -hmm. but when she was the the master class guest composer at this summer program the uh ema program the european american musical alliance we heard this one piece of hers which is like a 75 minute piece for electronics eight cellos and two <laughs> vocalists called perception yeah, yeah. or perceptions yep yeah. we listened to that like five times so that could and, that could arguably be arguably be quantity. Okay, but right? any seventy five minute piece yeah. listened to five times, I would argue, is is exhausting. I haven't heard that piece yet. It's a really cool piece. Mm. It's, but I I can see, I can kind of see. I feel like some of the there are consistencies. Like I I don't know Oliver Concerti super well. Offertorium is the only one that I that I really listen to at all other than this one. Um, I know she has a quasi hoketus is a piece that I know mm -hmm. pretty well. And there are some similarities between them and how the structure unfolds and the sounds that she likes. But I feel like is, 
that's no different than like every composer hearing ever a, hearing <laughs> like a bunch of Bach keyboard music and being like, why the fuck are there all these fugues? Yeah. Like, we get it. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Hashtag why the fugue. Oh, that's so good. WTF. Yeah. That's so good. Um, yeah, I, I think that that argument, like you say, it comes with anything. Like I remember um when dan asia you know had his his uh articles in the huffington post Mm -hmm. that were tearing down carter and cage and the cage one was specifically because it was you know the what hundredth anniversary of his birth or something Mm -hmm. and um you know they were playing a bunch of cage pieces and he had to he had to um he had to go to concerts where it was like all cage all the time and uh, like C- cage or felt... cage or carter sorry which which one was this cage was, this was, was the cage it was okay. definitely cage okay. yeah. right. um and uh he had similar comments like if you listen to all this in a row you know you it all pretty much blends in together and there's nothing special about it blah 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 I mean, i'm just paraphrasing we've been to a two-hour marimba concert where our ears oh, were man. exhausted Boy. at the end by lovely playing and lovely music but my god if i hear another boink sound you know like, like <laughs> <laughs> it has the same envelope for two hours straight it just gets exhausted <laughs> Well, you can change mallets, Jamie. It's, but it's just a—it's just a—it's a—it's a gradation of boink, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> it's kind of—it's monochromatic in that way. Yeah. <laughs> so I anything. <laughs> Rob, do you need a minute? Oh, we're keeping this in. This is this That's wait. hilarious. I've never heard the marimba described as a boink sound. That's awesome. <laughs> You listen to it for two hours straight. Um, <laughs> He's a percussionist. I have. I know. I know. I've listened to it for more than two hours straight. Yeah, but not playing it, not focusing on like like. Have you sat in the audience for a two-hour marimba concert? No. To be fair, it was, no. To there be fair, go. it was two and a half hours. It was. It was, and we were not allowed to leave. Oh, that oh. half will do it. Um. <laughs> Anyways. Um, it, it, so would, it seems like more of a critique of like bad programming, though. Yes. Yes. Yeah, definitely. It's not Sophia Gubaidalina's fault that I don't. Yeah. She's so awesome mm-hmm. that they decided to put all of her and the cons- so many of her pieces like in a sequence on a concert. And the consistency of that awesomeness is just very same. I was say, because <laughs> because actually one of the, my points about the piano concerto is it's kind of hilarious to listen to the limitations. Of mm-hmm. an instrument that doesn't slide and play microtones and mm. do that messy, you know, very seventies uh, and eighties were her kind of time period for experimenting for how much of a a gliss you can create with an ensemble. Her duo sonata for two bassoons does a ton of this, and it's gorgeous, which does not translate well to Barry saxophones. I'm sorry to the saxophone world, but you don't get that piece because it's just not as cool. On yeah, suck it, saxes. <laughs> yeah. That's the next hashtag. <laughs> I told you I was in a mood. It was going to be a good oh, one. Oh, <laughs> um, but, but you know, my, my personal favorite piece, I think Offertorium is amazing, but homage to T.S. Eliot has been my favorite 
maybe my favorite piece, but my definitely my favorite Gubadalina piece since I was introduced to her music. And part of mm-hmm. it is um, the, the control of gesture that she has and the impulse to create, you know, essentially a slide whistle with an ensemble. <laughs> but you can't do that it happens a lot in her big in her large chamber music and offertorium and actually the sound you just made is a huge gesture shape in offertorium it happens a yeah but that's lot. not a slide whistle a slide whistle is yeah, okay why don't you just pick a beer for this guy <laughs> <laughs> Rob appreciates verisimilitude and his gestures. <laughs> but she can't do that with a piano. So this piece was, was not only different in, in, in formal structure than most of her other concerti, but she, she had to approximate that with the ensemble only and use the piano as kind of a foil against that, which I think was hilarious. <laughs> well, I... I... Didn't find it hilarious, but I will say that point eight. <laughs> you're just you're just humorless. You're gonna have to check these point eight on my ten points. As well, to wait, why wait this a minute, is... wait a minute. Wait, how many points have we had already? We had. I've said one. The O one three four tetrachord. That was that's number point nine. nine. Yeah. Okay, so now we're on this eight. This is point eight. Okay. We skipped ten, but we're still going backwards. Well, we, oh, do we have to do this linearly? <laughs> no, we don't. But I'm just keeping track for myself okay. and for the this. listener, honestly. Yes. So um, point eight is about the piano writing. Mm. And the even though the piano is limited, like you say, mm-hmm. Jamie, I can't do glissandi and that sort of thing. There's so much in the piano part that is exploring the timbre of the instrument in such a wonderful way. Yeah. Like the the first thing we we hear in the piano, which is one of the excerpts that that I that I cut for this. It, it's all about just the sympathetic overtones that happen um, on the instrument with like a really wide interval in the low register. Mm. And there are other parts like in the fast section where you hear the, um, it's so fast you hear the sound of the hammers hitting the string. Mm-hmm. So there's like this percussive element mm. that, and so I worked as a piano technician when I was in my doctorate and after that. And I love all of these sounds of the piano, the like ones that we don't appreciate because the whole thing is is designed to resonate like one hundred percent of the time. So the whole thing is an instrument, and I feel like she does so much in this piece to explore all of these underappreciated timbres, like like the sound of the hammers hitting the string, like the resonance of the piano. A lot of people explore those things, but it it just seems like she's trying to push those boundaries and maybe to meet where she takes the rest of the orchestra in the piece so it's not as dualistic mm. maybe as it would be, you know, uh, strings that can slide, wind instruments that can play microtonally to an extent, while the piano can bend its timbre in some ways as well. And I just love that so much about this piece. It's true. Um, you know this piece better than I do. Does she use glissando at all? Because because she writes, she, and I'm getting to like a really nitty, nitpicky instrumentation versus... Um, it can't portamento, but it can glissando. I don't think she used that at all, did she? In the strings? No, 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 the no. Piano. The piano. Oh, uh, no, no, no. I mean, it, it can't... 
literally glissando, yeah, the, the, but it you can't you be can portamento. Like, I don't. But it can. You know. Well, yeah, you can. You can like. Right, but move she did your hand right? up and down the. I don't think she does that. I I think that there are runs that are really fast yeah. that kind of sound like that. Okay. But I I I I've never seen the score, so I don't know. I have listened mm. to it a bunch, mm-hmm. but yeah. I don't. But there there are gestures in the piano part that are really fast that kind of sound like a slide. So I mean, getting back to the whole like changing the piano's timbre and really focusing on the sound, the underappreciated sounds. Are are you sure she's doing that, or is that just a byproduct that you are hearing? Because, I mean, if she is doing that, it's pretty subtle. I think like it's it's not her primary goal. I would say it's maybe in the like the tolling bells section. Mm. Yes, of course. But in terms of like the hammers hitting the hitting the keys, I think that's kind of secondary to the overall like really fast noty of it like when you when you said you know a composer who's paying attention to kind of sounds that are the the underappreciated sounds of the piano um i mean one person who came to mind who you know we i interviewed kind of recently is uh the piece that uh annie huixing shared her her piano piece that it was like an anti-piano piece basically <laughs> but i just I wonder how much of that is actually, and, and it, honestly, it doesn't matter, like how much of that went into her thinking because it's what you hear and that's what's important. But it doesn't. If if that is something, I think she does it very subtly because it seems like still notes and rhythm are taking the forefront, at least in the faster section. Well, I I agree with you that it doesn't matter. Um... If she was thinking about it, okay. just like it. when when um, composers were writing sonata forms, what we call sonata forms in the 18th century, they they didn't sit down and say, "I'm going to write a sonata form necessarily." Yeah. So you know, I think that it's definitely a given the attention to timbre that's so present in Gubaitalina's music. I'm sure it's it's a it's a quality of the material, particularly the fast material that is part of that idea that I would be very surprised if it didn't occur to her. I don't know if it matters. The first that I, it's harder for me to think that the resonance of the first thing we hear the piano do and like the, the body that comes to the, the, the harmony there in the Mm -hmm. piano part from the spacing and the, where it happens in the register of the piano it would be very surprising to me if that's not something that was deliberate just because it's a very specific sound on the instrument and it's a very specific voicing and right. But I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's a sound that, you know, goes unnoticed. I feel like to put it in focus like that as the first thing we hear in a concerto is very, it's a very cool move. It's definitely a cool move because I mean, like, as I was listening to this, you know, we're we're a minute in or whatever. I'm like, where the hell's the piano? It's three and then minutes. The, yeah, over three. Over three minutes yeah, okay. Into the piece. Three and a half. So yeah. So and then when the the piano does come in, I'm like, really? Okay. You know, like yeah. That's actually one of the uh, huge differences between this and every other concerto of hers is that 
in both violin concertos, um, the the violin Offertorium, starts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in in the concerto for bassoon and low strings, I'm pretty sure if the bassoon doesn't start, it's in within you know thirty seconds or less. Well, well, right, and, and then you the I mean the piece gets to about halfway before the piano has any other material other than mm-hmm. the like tolling bells mm-hmm. idea. Mm-hmm. And we go from this completely static, you know, barely moving uh, piano idea to, oh my God, we're off to the races. It's like mm-hmm. you're sitting still and then you like just start sprinting. So, you know, well, I, I was going to say, so do, do we, is that, is that our first excerpt that we're, that we're going to listen to is the, the tolling kind of piano thing, Garrett? Yeah. Yeah. The first excerpt is it's the strings leading into the first piano. Oh, I could, chord. could we, could we, could we listen to that now? I'd love to yeah, hear that. Yeah. Yeah, that's just that's just so cool. Nice book ending. Hey, well, uh, I, I I also figure it's about time for Garrett to make a choice, uh, one or three, my friend. Okay, well, he 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 should make his choice, yep. but I I I don't want to leave this just yet. Oh, well, so. we're not gonna we're not gonna leave it, but he should definitely make the choice. Well, the beer might derail it. Yeah, I don't know what you got there. <laughs> I'm gonna do I'm gonna do number one. Number one. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Rob is not going to appreciate you for that. Um, but at least we'll know that's not terrible. It's, uh, well, it's smooth and it's sweet. It's blueberry wheat. Oh, God. <laughs> that's what you said about the cherry wheat beer you had. Hey, it doesn't matter what fruit it is. It's all great to me. As long as it ends in wheat, it rhymes in that stupid phrase. Okay. Back to what you were saying, Rob. <laughs> this excerpt that we just heard was the kind of the... I mean, we we heard the the end of the string and then going into the piano, but it the the section that comes before it, like as you said, the three minutes that comes before it, you know that. As I was listening to this, uh, first of all, I have to say she does the th- she does my. It's 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 not a pet peeve, but it's very close to a pet peeve. What's is the your whole like pet peeve? <laughs> it's the whole starting with a half step and not moving away from it. Oh. Well, it's it's not as bad as the starting with just a single tone, note. one tone, and then you go above it, like and then like you go this, below it, mm, and then you come back to it. 
Oh, that's original. We're, we're very close to copyright infringement at this point. Yeah. <laughs> so is everybody that's else. Actually, <laughs> that's actually one of the things that I think kind of makes the piece sound dated a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Oh, is that fair. I feel like it's... I feel like it's a very 70s way to open a piece. Well, some people well, didn't get the it, message that it stopped in the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> well, a lot of people didn't get the message. Um, anyway, but it also, it you know, has this kind of liggety, micro-polyphony mm-hmm. thing, thing going on. Mm-hmm. And I have the same critique of liggety most of the time that I do with this piece. It's just, I wish the cloud of micropolyphony would move. That's all I want. You know, because in this piece, every texture is fascinating, mm-hmm. but getting from one texture to another is very blocky. I actually know? think and, that's one of the things she improved by the time she wrote Offertorium, is that okay. I love all of the textures and the gestural writing is is absolutely solid. That's, right. that, that's what actually pushes me in the direction of, of that piece is a little bit easier for me to listen to than this one. So with this, you know, I, 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 get, I guess that, you know, the micro polyphony, I want it to expand and contract and move different places. And I mean, remember in the, well, I guess it was just the last podcast, but it was like a few, a few weeks ago for us. Um, Remember when we were talking about learning something from a negative example? Yes, yeah. Because obviously I had I had not heard her music, but you know, it was bringing to mind Ligeti for me and Ligeti was my kind of negative example mm. of I wish this did that. Mm. And subsequently that's been a big thing I've thought about in my own music, you know. I like this, but I don't think it goes far enough. Mm-hmm. I can go further. Mm-hmm. But talking about Gubadalina again, this brings up my question that I always ask when I'm listening to a new piece is, am I, am I forcing my own, am I forcing this piece into my own construct of what it should be as opposed to just going to what it is? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's part of our job as teachers, which harkens back to our last podcast as well. Is, yes. is it like we need to, we, our tastes guide us in our own writing and, and we need to know what it is we like and we dislike about a piece to, in order to teach our students, you know, okay, well, if you like this about a certain section or, or about the polyphony, here are the good things about it. If you dislike certain parts of it, that's equally important to know. Right. But being the listener, I have a job to do. And I, yeah. I truly believe that, that if I'm going to take something away from a piece, and maybe this is me taking something away, but also that reaction I had was a pretty quick reaction when I started hearing <laughs> mm-hmm. it. It was like, oh, this is blocky and it's not going anywhere. So is that just me not doing the work, I guess? It's probably a little bit of both. But. Probably. Well, so going going back to what I was saying before about why I like her approach to the piano so much and yeah. in, in this piece is the the patience the yeah <laughs> insistence that we just hear the this specific piano timbre for so much of the piece it is like half the piece before we get beyond 
this really resonant piano sound. That's why, that's a signal that I pick up on that, that this piece, something she wants to do with this piece is really make us soak into this piano sound. This piano sound that's always part of hearing the acoustic piano because it's always resonating like that, but it's like, you have to focus on this. And I, and I like, I like what you're saying. Like, am I imposing what I wish the piece would do onto it when I'm listening to it, or should I just meet it where it's at? Right. Cause I think the beginning of of this piece develops very slowly (laughs) and I kind of like it because I think there's a lot of confidence in, in, in these deliberate unfolding of the beginning of the piece. It's like, I want you to pay attention to this. You're going to pay attention to this. And then it goes, it, it, it pays off by going to a lot of different places in the second half of the piece. I agree that that's totally her focus of being like, you need to pay attention to this. Right. However, I just feel like the text, like the individual blocks of texture are so interesting, but she loses me when she, when she transitions because the transitions are so kind of uninspired from one thing to the next, but each thing is really well crafted and it's interesting and it pulls me in. It's just I lo- she loses me when we go from the one thing to the next. So, so I have a thought here that that's a question for everybody. Uh, this is 1978. Yes. Arguably, the French spectral movement in Paris, uh, which is, you know, has started around 1974, mid-70s, shall we say, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and things like uh, Grisé's partials ha- has now kind of occurred and what have you. I mean, is, is do we think of Gubaidulina as a spectralist? And based upon everything we've just been talking about, in terms of her insistence on timbre, in terms of the slow evolution, in terms of the process, in terms of the textual exploration, is is she a, is she really a spectralist? Well, Could she be at I, the time? She was still in the Soviet Union. But but this but uh, but we are listening to this in this moment and comparing it with things of of that are happening elsewhere, right? Well, right, but I guess that I guess I need to hear what your definition of a, being a spectralist is. Oh, that's hard. Hi, second, bro. That's that's hard. Why you're doing? This is somebody who wrote his doctoral uh, uh, thesis on right Philip Larue and and spectralism and had to go through all of the spectralist treaties on. Need more wine. Um, <laughs> I mean, because I mean, because I mean. Personally, Go ahead. I look at I look at spectralism as a tool. Oh, I don't okay. look at it as a movement. Now, if you're doing your dissertation on this, you obviously know more than I do. But we are I, also of a generation where we we take past movements and we look at them as tools, though. So let's keep that in mind before we let him go into his whole definition. Serialism okay. is a tool. Minimalism can be a tool, or it can be a style. I, minimalism's a tool. 
Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. But after, well. Actually, with this this configuration of people, that's pretty funny. Um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I'm not confident enough with my understanding of spectralism to really say, but what what I will say is that it's very clear timbre is a priority mm-hmm. to this piece. That's number one on my ten reasons of why. Well, timbre and texture are yeah. used dynamically and purposefully in this piece. That's mm-hmm. number one mm-hmm. well, on my list of ten reasons why it's perfect to me. <laughs> but but I don't know. This sounds like... I feel like a high school journal this, I had once. Sorry, Garrett. <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> I wanted to be prepared. I am so glad you are, but it's no. just, you know. It's so, like, it's so good. It's so good. These are the 10 things. Somebody had to earn us guy. the explicit rating, right? Exa- exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you just no, but I would say that that's something that, like, mm. um, something I really like about this piece is there is a lot of variety in the melodic and harmonic materials that we get triads we used in probably my favorite way to use triads is that you don't really hear them as triads hmm. and it's sort of it's like the triads that happen in from the canyons to the stars yeah and it's like oh my god i just heard a root position major chord and i didn't even know what it was because it doesn't make we don't recognize it either that or they're so starkly contrasting everything going on you're like oh my god a triad (laughs) there's just a few moments where she does that it's 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 shocking (laughs) no i i i love that and i feel like a a lot of the spectral music that i've listened to like i've heard some grise and other people but i'm not super well versed there's not always that variety of material Mm. and so i like the freedom something i really appreciate about this piece this is number three, <laughs> is the the free but meaningful harmonic and melodic language. Like everything, it has a broad range of ideas, but they feel cohesive. They have like a sense of themselves. They form an identity mm. that is contains a lot of di- things that we would label differently, but makes sense within the context of the piece. I would agree with that. I That was one of the things when I, when I was listening to it, that did stick out to me as like, oh, well, this is kind of what we would call a consonant sound and we had before what we would call dissonant sounds. And it it all flows, the harmonic language does flow together mm-hmm. pretty seamlessly. And that I that is one of the things I really liked about it. To go back to your earlier point, the the pacing of the piece or the the duration that she will spend on a specific thing. That's another thing that I really, really like about the piece. I mean, it reminds me of, it it reminds me of, well, I mean, not to keep going back to this, but it actually reminds me of Ligeti in a way. Like his, uh, his um, chamber concerto has that trill in the middle first. I can't remember Uh, what movement is, but it has that trill that just, Mm -hmm. yeah, it has that trill that just lasts forever. And it's like, God, I love that you're spending so long on this. It feels so good. Any shorter. And it would feel like, Oh, I didn't push it enough, Mm -hmm. but where it lands. And I mean, that's not to draw a, big comparison but the end of the move at the end of this piece ends like that and i loved it i yeah. absolutely love the ending of this piece yeah it is a, a cool ending so but i but i go back to like there's so many things i love about this piece 
but it's the getting from one thing to another, which I find I is always the hardest thing for a composer to do is getting from one idea to another convincingly that I just don't think it, well, it doesn't do it for me. I, I recognize where you're coming from. I've been thinking about this cause you brought it up multiple times to this point in the conversation. Like, I feel like, there is a really amazing large-scale transition from the first half of the piece to where we are at the end of the piece. Mm. And knowing what I know about Sophia... And the, but I hate to bring in, like, privileged knowledge or anything like that no. just because I saw her no, I mean, that's, talk through a translator no, it's, to a bunch of it's, it's people in a very warm though. room. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, But... Knowing what I know about her approach to form, I feel like her focus was probably on how do I get, how do I connect these incredibly different spaces from where the piece begins and where the piece ends. And maybe because this is a 40 year old piece, at the point of when she wrote it, maybe she was better at doing the large scale transition than doing the transition on the small scale. Mm-hmm. I don't disagree with you that the that it's kind of blocky. It doesn't bother me as much, though, because I love that it's just one movement. Yeah. And the journey we go... This is point number six. We go on a journey mm-hmm. to very different places, mm-hmm. and they feel connected. And I think that is really hard to do. Um, and if maybe like the individual steps along the path are not as seamless as they could be that is a that's a very valid point but i also don't i can for me it doesn't matter as much which is Mm. why transitions are not on my list of 10 things (laughs) no no i mean that's that's absolutely fair and interestingly enough spectralism um because what we what we've just been talking about i think will circle back to this very nicely so if if you want a definition of spectralism it's it's highly problematic right uh the argument yeah. the argument is from from several uh spectralists and or disciples of spectralism that there is no school of spectralism like like True. you're saying, Rob, that like like spectralism is is kind of uh, a tool, but in in the spectralist mind, spectralism is a more of a philosophical understanding of things. So so um, Tristan Murai broke down spectralism into like a, a set of tenets, more or less. Like if you're a spectral composer. Um, you you do several things, and, I, and I'm not going to enumerate all of them because apparently you all are drinking and don't care. <laughs> um, but no, no, I think the ones that that are relevant to what we're talking about, uh, the first one of the first things is that they conceive of the macrocosm before the microcosm, rather than getting bogged down in details of surface level concerns or taking a Germanic approach of motivic development. They think about the whole piece, and so it's interesting when I hear Garrett talk about the the continuity from the beginning and the end that that might be a concern, and the idea of this overall trajectory. 
so that the the large scale form is something that is thought of before moving to the microcosm. And in many spectral compositions, the microcosm is some kind of permutation or uh, uh, translation or kind of uh, um, topological transformation of the macrocosm. So you get the large scale structure at different scales. And that's the the fractal yep. Fibonacci-esque yep. element, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and so that's I can't believe I just said fractal on a podcast. <laughs> hey, they did it in Frozen. You can do it on a podcast. <laughs> let it go. Let it. Go. Oh, sorry. We are, we are getting sued so hard. <laughs> was that the dad moment on the podcast? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. <laughs> It was. You know, after we left your house, by the way, I had, in summer, stuck in my head the whole car ride home, and for like another half a week after that, I Bees a buzz, <laughs> kids will blow dandelion so fuzz, and I'll be doing whatever snow does in summer. You And it's so cool, because in, in Rob's house, for those of you who have not been to his house, of which I can't imagine many of our listeners have, <laughs> Uh, there, there are just instruments hanging from the walls and the ceiling, and he'll just pull one of these things off and just start, and his children are singing away with it. It's beautiful. It's mm. absolutely beautiful, folks. Anyway. <laughs> I can't wait to until you get the cease and desist order from Disney. Because you keep <laughs> reproducing their music. On it's a podcast. This is fair use. It's not used commercially. We're not using it for any... May the record reflect that I did not participate. We're not affecting copyright. the financial gain of Disney. We're using it in a critical or... She's just uh, going to keep going. <laughs> I don't know that it's critical, but... No, 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 no. <laughs> In a critical okay. or satirical way. So, so I mean, spectralism. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I mean, I think I think that's that's really interesting to hear what we're talking about, and to, and to think about you know this is this is a, a a Russian composer who is who is you know in the Soviet Union and not necessarily perhaps exposed to I don't I don't know I don't know but but it not perhaps she exposed. Did, she did travel a couple of times throughout that time period. She could have had access to some of it, but I doubt it was a deep enough exposure for her to get a full awareness of what was going on in especially because. Because she didn't, I don't think she went to Paris. I think she went to Germany. Right. That's well, part of the reason she but, moved there. but this is part of the thing. Like Rob has brought up Ligeti a number of times. Ligeti is arguably a proto spectralist in a lot of ways. There's a lot of proto spectralist sort of things happening. Um, that, he just rolled his eyes. Well, and you know, of something. course, of course, because uh, this is a podcast, and I'm drinking <laughs> bad beer, and this is what Rob does. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't a, isn't like Vivaldi a proto spectralist too? Oh, we no. can we can this we can we can we can take this to the absurd, See, right? Thank you, thank you, Garrett, because that's that's the point that I was gonna make. Like, uh, yeah, he's they're interested in sound, duh. I mean. Yeah. Well, it de- it definitely it definitely becomes problematic, and this is uh, in in my in my uh, in my attempts to untangle some of this. Um, I've put my foot in my mouth a number of times when I talk with minimalists and spectralists in the same room, and I look at them and go, "Y'all know you're basically doing the same thing, right?" You I, just I put thought that of on that. a podcast. Yeah. I know I did, and it's fine. We get hate mail. It's it's I I well I embrace the hate. 
I when you were describing spectralism as like the macrocosm over the microcosm, uh-huh. I was thinking exactly of how minimalism is defined in a lot of ways about like un, an unfolding process yes. over time, yes. which is macrocosm over microcosm. Yes. And then I was thinking if Rob wants smooth transitions, he should just listen to drumming by <laughs> Steve Reich. Wow. <laughs> the sass in or I do, I do lo- children. I do love that piece. <laughs> you know why I love that piece? Because Steve Reich didn't suck when he wrote that piece. Oh, there it went. Have you heard the double sextet? Because there's a pretty no. like blocky transition in that piece. And that's by Steve Reich. And so I I'm haven't... just letting you know <laughs> everyone can do it. I haven't really listened to much recent Steve Reich. Like 1984 is pretty much my cutoff with him. Like, I don't care. That's, that's like when you graduated cutoff. high school, no, right? It's not. It's it was the not. year after he was were born. That's hilarious. Uh, yeah. That's when he wrote, uh, what is that piece called? The 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 um, vocal announcement. To to heal him. To to Liam. I I can't. I can never remember how you pronounce it. Mm. To heal him. Sure. Isn't that it? Yeah. That was the last good piece he wrote, <laughs> and he has oh. done very well after that. Wow, so that's that's, a, that's you, official. You folks. know. <laughs> so. You know. Well, we've in the in the last five minutes we've had two scorching takes. Spectralists <laughs> and minimalists are the same. Steve Reich hasn't written a good I, piece in the last thirty four years. I am not oh. opening the email inbox this week. That's all on Andrew. Jamie, Jamie, and I are just here to talk about how much we love, love Sophia Gubaidalina. That's, right. That's right. We love her. Andrew's here to confuse us, and I'm here to shit on it. <laughs> here, let no. me. So I've non-sequentially hit a lot of the reasons why this piece is perfect to me. Let me just tell you the rest of them, because I spent time making this list, and I don't <laughs> want to get through it. So I already, already, we've talked about number one. About, why don't you just you, go, just, just remind yep. us all of Number it. one, it uses timbre and texture dynamically and purposefully. Like a spectralist. Number two, it uses rhythm dynamically and purposefully. Purposefully, there's a great range of rhythm and gesture and all of that. Mm-hmm. Like Melodic a composer, and harmonic language is free but meaningful. It combines a broad range of ideas into materials that seem cohesive. Uh, there is surprise, but we can also follow what is happening. Is that for? We get a sense of consequences for when ideas return. What so number was that? Like, Sorry, consequences for I think. Consequences for. When an idea returns, it's not repeated literally, it's transformed in some way. Yeah. And so we, I, I like pieces where we feel like we've gone somewhere, and if we come back somewhere, like we've changed, because in a lot of ways we have as listeners. Um, I like the patience and confidence of the pacing, even though it is slow, and I recognize that. We go on a journey to different musical spaces that feel connected it has at least one wow moment. What which, What is that for you? For me, it's when the piano comes in. I'll never forget the first time I listened to the piece. And when the piano came... I was like in an airport. And I listened to it. And when the piano came in, I was just blown away. And I also love the part... And this is one of the clips that I... I think the third excerpt that I sent you, Rob... Um, when the piano is playing triads against like these slides and the strings, 
I love that too. It's kind of a wow moment as well. Why don't the pe- why don't we listen to that? Okay, great. Cool. Continue with your list. Uh, number eight, the piano writing and the way it explores register and timbre of the instrument. Um, number nine, there's an 0134 tetrachord, which is my favorite tetrachord. And so I love to hear it. <laughs> and then number 10. Hey, there's nothing wrong really, with that. Listening to this really, really, really makes me want to hear it live. Oh, agreed. Yeah. And I think for for, for a piece that's written... Like as a concert piece that's for acoustic instruments, it's really important for it to make you want to hear it live. And I really want to hear it live. I want to see what it looks like for the pianist just to sit there until they play. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like that's, that's super dramatic. And uh, and also the, the way later on in the piece, like ideas that bounce between the orchestra. I also love that it's for a small orchestra. This is such a, Rob, you were talking about how it's subtle and it it is subtle, but I really like that it's subtle because I compare this, like I heard this for the first time in 2018 and they're like just a lot of huge orchestra pieces that, that like everyone, people, a lot of people are writing really big orchestra pieces and like, like play by Andrew Norman and mm-hmm. yep. Um, yep. other composers who I won't, <laughs> for some reason I'll just name him. I don't know. And, yeah, let's just drag him. <laughs> and I, no, like John Adams, I'm sure has done something terrible. So <laughs> Scorch take number three. Wow. Wait, Woo! wait, cla- wow. wait, wait, clar- clarify. Which Adams? John. Yeah, yeah, that, that doesn't composer. help. D- is there a Luther or no? Yes. No, 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 no. Sounds Coolidge. Just, yeah, Coolidge. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. just just specify. I want to know who the hate mail is coming from. That's all it is. <laughs> yeah. But I love, I love the way, you know, it's for small orchestra and piano. It's not bombastic or anything like that. But it still is such a creates such a rich musical world and. Yeah, you know, there's something really interesting in in that, and I, I feel like I apologize for making this like a doctoral comprehensive exam now because you've opened the door into orchestration, and now we can talk about the ensemble. The ensemble is one flute, one oboe, one bassoon, and a chamber gaggle of strings. One very busy bassoon, my and the, the the piano. Well, yeah. that's that's the thing. I, I mean, I'm listening to this. There's a ton of bassoon writing, uh, especially in the beginning. And, and it's sh- kind of like the woodwinds are not 
on equal footing with the piano, but they're they're, do, they're doing they're still soloists. And, you know? well, and, and it's not just all woodwinds; it is flute and bassoon for a large mm-hmm. portion yeah, of, of, of it's it's yeah. Is there a horn? Is there no no nope. no? Nope. There's no brass. Oh, I thought there was one. There are nope. a spot where I heard there's horn. A it must be bassoon. It sounds brassy, brassy, mm-hmm. and it's a combination of of. I think there's a moment where there's some Silpont um, tremolo paired with the bassoon, and it gets really just screwed up in your ears. Well, there's a couple moments where I'm I'm hearing what she eventually does in some of these larger pieces when she has like muted brass and just like this really buzzy high partial kind mm-hmm. of. It's it's so and there's these moments like yeah, I imagine you know in the next few years if she were writing this, this is where that would go. You know that yeah. that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is this is coming off of I, I can't remember exactly the years, but she wrote the bassoon and low string con, the the concerto for bassoon and low strings, and then coming off of that, this is the second concerto, and there's just a ton of bassoon in it, and I kind of find that fun in the some ways. The concerto for bassoon and low strings was seventy five, and this piece was seventy eight. Okay, so practically right off of yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it's amazing the amount of uh, different sounds and energies to get from such a limited ensemble, I think is really to Sophia Gubaitalina's credit. And mm. I think, um, makes the piece more impressive. I'll have to add an 11th point. Mm. Oh this. man. Well, I think, I think that becomes a huge part. This one goes to 11. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, um, this is, it sounds like some of the early stages of her experiment with with manipulating the envelope of acoustic sounds. Something that we do mm-hmm. with electronic sounds. But but the reason you can tell the difference between a bassoon and an oboe is that the is obviously the envelope shape. If you mask uh, like part a spectralist. Of it, thanks for interrupting. Um, <laughs> if you mask Okay, Andrew part of the She's a spectralist. You can shut no, up and we can not. listen to no, Jamie. She's not. <laughs> We can't call her a spectralist. I agree with Jamie. Okay. So if you mask the attack, it is difficult to tell what instrument is sustaining, right? That's yeah. a general principle yeah. of, of, of exactly. acoustics, right? And this is a huge thing that she does throughout her works. And it was one of the most phenomenal manipulations of timbre that she uses to enhance gesture. This is why she's, to me, she is such a brilliant composer. And I think this is a piece where she has some really early experimentation. So you don't know that there's no brass. Yeah. Because she's, she's fucking with our ears in such a brilliant way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, yeah, go ahead, Rob. I'd go rather ahead. hear from Rob than no, yeah, no, it's, it's probably, it's, <laughs> that is, that is not untrue. <laughs> I win. Um, I will say that despite the, you know, hangups I I do have with this piece, this kind of put the bug in me. You know, I was, I was looking at, I was, I was starting to look at some of her other pieces and I was like, Hmm, this is, this seems like someone I've missed that I shouldn't have missed. So I'm probably going to go listen to some other stuff by her because there was enough, there was enough good things. There were enough good things in this piece that yeah, makes me want to seek out more. 
I honestly, so so I stumbled upon her music way earlier than my career than I should have. I accidentally found her when I was like, what the hell are multiphonics? And what other pieces have them? This was maybe my sophomore year of college. Somebody pointed me in the direction of her duo sonata. I was a sophomore in college, and for some reason, it was just like, fuck yes, let's listen to everything. And um, <laughs> When I was a sophomore, I was listening to Steve Reich. <laughs> it's and there's really okay. nothing wrong with that, but it was a, it was a weirdly early discovery for me. So, so you know, the, oh. the um, duo sonata and homage to T.S. Eliot is, is just bizarre and amazing. Because not everybody plays in every movement, but when they come together, it is absolute gold. And the proportions, and there's some religious imagery, and T.S. Eliot, and just good God. But I could go on and on with your listening list, Rob, but I now have assignments for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I was between my sophomore <laughs> and junior year of college when I attended this summer program. Mm. And I really liked the sound of her music because I like that style. Mm-hmm. I still do. I mean, part of part of the reason I like this piece so much is that there's a little bit of nostalgia because I, I like 1970s modernism. <laughs> Fair. But, but, but 1970s re- sorry, modernism... I, I, sorry, Garrett. I really, <laughs> really wanted you to say I like Ligeti. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's I mean, an inside like joke from our, from our rice days, but yeah. Oh no, I love Ligeti as as. Oh, I know. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, <laughs> I I I really particularly like free, like stylistically unrestrained, um, nineteen seventies modernism like this that blends in triads and like goes goes different places. Like something I like about this piece is it, it is not constrained externally by style well yeah there's there's and i think i've talked about this on a number of podcasts so it's get i'm getting like a broken record here but the idea that inherence to a dogma generally makes uh, a lesser artistic musical product in my own opinion like if if you are just a disciple of a particular process or style sometimes the music can come off as lackluster and when you have a composer who's unafraid of uh pluralism of some kind it ch- it tends to be more artistically satisfying for me i agree and and i think that this piece is kind of fearless in its subtlety, mm-hmm. and it's kind of fearless in the sort of wildly different places it goes to. Although it takes it takes time, it makes you wait. Yeah, for it. But I oh, kind of like that it makes you wait. Well, what was the last excerpt that we're going to listen to? So the um, the last one is actually it's from the fast section of piano. And it's where you hear that sound that I love so much. It's it it. This is really personal to me from my piano tuning days because <laughs> you hear that sound of the hammer hitting the strings in addition to the note. Mm-hmm. And it's like when you're tuning that upper register of the piano. <laughs> that's like that's like all you have to. That's like you're trying to ignore it. But so it, listening to this piece, I like get to enjoy that sound that I 
when I was uh, suffering as a piano technician, I had to try to ignore. So, all right, let's listen to it. <laughs> God, that's good. Well, you know, at, at this point, I don't know who cares, but um, <laughs> I've, I've moved on to my third and final beer, and it's uh, a nice crisp apple hard cider. Thank you, uh, Andy. It's not a beer. Not, shut Andy. up. Shut up. <laughs> See, at least I'm predictable. I drink good hey, I'm, wine. I'm predictable. <laughs> I'm absolutely predictable. I drink the only good Australian wine. <laughs> How, how's your second one, Garrett? Is that what you're into now? He's... Oh, I'm almost done. Oh, this is great. The uh, This is the parking lot beer. <laughs> right. And, uh, and you're not dead. So it's not no, dead. I'm, it is I'm not, not a, dead. It could be, it's a 40 ounce. It could be a slow right? working poison. Um, <laughs> I see in the, 750 milliliters. I see that. Yeah. In the realm of... Um, in the realm of imperial bourbon barrel stouts, this is probably the best one I've ever had. Sweet. So. See, wow. I should have, if I had known that it was a bourbon barrel stout, I would have brought the bourbon barrel uh, 19 crimes, but it is it is a little too um, edgy <laughs> for Andrew, huh. so I didn't buy it yesterday. <laughs> I mean, come on, it's edgy for Andrew? That's, Rob is thinking that's just about everything. <laughs> It's got a kick on the end of it. That's just that's a, that's even a for Budweiser me, for I have Andrew. To be in the right mood. Yeah, yeah. It brings me to my next point. I mean, about this. everyone. Never mind. Go ahead. No, no, no. no. Go no, ahead. No. What, what was your point? My point was about the piece. Oh. My yeah. point was about the alcohol. You you talk about the alcohol, and I'll talk about the piece. <laughs> All right. Everyone's getting so into bourbon barrel everything. Yet I'm just like, give me the bourbon. That's what I want. <laughs> Keep your barrel. I want the bourbon. Well, Rob, when you show when you meet a stranger in a Wendy's parking lot off of I seventy five in Lexington, Kentucky, oh, you can't really negotiate. Bring me the bourbon. Did you even know what you were? You knew what you were getting, though. No, no, it was just like I'm going to show up and you're going to give me some beer. That's it. And I trust yeah. you. All right. Wow. Now we're going to have a little like. Adjective, we care about all of the adjective family, and therefore we talk you guys through dangerous situations meeting. <laughs> because we care that you don't die. <laughs> all right, Jamie, make your point about the piece. Uh, my point about the piece was something about personal taste. Oh, 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 okay. <laughs> I'm back. All right, I'm here. <laughs> um, 
this particular piece. I like it. However, refreshing my my um, recognition of the piece and listening to it this week, I was not in the right... Stop it, Rob. <laughs> I was not in the right space to hear this piece this week and be like, oh yeah, that's a good Gubinolina piece. I was like, okay. I know where she was when she wrote this. There are other pieces that transcend that for me. There are pieces that I can listen to and say, okay, this this turns off the external world for me. And, and personally... This one doesn't do it in a way that, uh, obviously, I've said before, homage to T.S. Eliot does, but even Offertorium and even the duo sonata. And I think that goes into the personal taste we each expressed about this tonight. For Garrett, it might be. You might be able to listen to this anytime, and it brings you out of the, the mood you're in, the finals that your students screwed up, the ones that didn't upload, the ones that they emailed the wrong person about it. You know, it's it's like, it is, it's, it's finals week. Things are going wrong in my life <laughs> for my students. And this does not transcend for me. It doesn't draw me out of that. Now, now if we're, if we're kind of doing a final summation of things, I, I had a similar kind of experience where this piece for me, but I, I, I like you, I know a significant amount of Gubaidolina's um, uh, works and output. It doesn't pull me into the piece, but I will say that if I'm in the right space and, I'm, and I am willing to meet this piece halfway, it's incredibly meditative for me. I, I just, mm-hmm. I, I love just kind of um, bobbing in the ocean of this particular piece. It's, it's, it's a nice, it's a very good experience for me, but it, it won't pull me there. I have to already be there. Yeah. I think that's... Well, this, what I was hoping we would get to is kind of like how we think about what pieces of music really resonate with us. Mm. Because this one like really hits all of my buttons as I, mm-hmm. as proved by my 10 point list that I shared. Before. 11. Uh, 11 or 12 at this point. Yeah. You know, just <laughs> keep adding to that. Yep. At least 13. It's, it's, it's not a list. It's a Google doc. Anyone can just. <laughs> I love it. In it. But like for me, particularly because the first time I heard it, I had this magical experience, yeah. like waiting for the piano to come in. And then when it came in in the way that it did and was so arresting in the simplicity of the piano part, like I am, I'm like soul. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like when you find a restaurant where they have like, like a dish that takes you somewhere. Or, it's uh, like I'm going back there and I'm ordering that dish and I don't care if I go bankrupt doing and missing out. <laughs> I don't care if I'm missing out on other good things on the menu. Like this mm-hmm. does it for me. And that's what this piece does for me. I mean, or if you have a restaurant with a parking lot and a random person who Stop has it. an alcohol <laughs> that that turns out to be Stop really it. good. <laughs> Well, I would I would compare this to the Wendy's spicy chicken sandwich, which is a fabulous and transcendent um, piece oh, of culinary wow. science. So. So I mean, maybe, yep, go ahead, it's interest, It's interesting how when you have that amazing first experience with a piece, like some of the time you go back to it and it's still amazing, and some of the time you go back to it and it's just like. What was I thinking? Yeah, yeah. You know? Because I have definitely had those same 
types of moments, mostly inebriated, um, <laughs> where I will just be so into a piece, probably because I'm drunk and I'd be into anything at that point. That's that came out wrong. Um, I did not. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that, Rob. but I, but actually, I mean, Garrett, uh, I, I remember one one night at Carl's, uh, Carl Blanche, where we were oh. drinking, and then we we started. I think it was like maybe Thanksgiving or Christmas or something, where we would go over to their place, and then at a certain point, Carl would get drunk enough, and he'd start playing music, and it was some like ten cello piece i can't remember what it was no he played the uh it was the one of the movements from the rachmaninoff vespers oh they would you're make everyone, right you were there yes <laughs> he would Rob make everyone remember. sit down and he was like you have to listen to this russian choir rachmaninoff he showed the score to a german choir conductor and he was like no one can sing a low c and he's like in Russia, they can sing the low C. I know the voices going, of my people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, going back to Russia, the Russian imperial stout that I drank at the beginning of the podcast. <laughs> Sofia Gubaidalina's Russian. This is all perfectly symmetrical. Oh man, the synergy! Um, wow. But but yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure I listened to that piece again, and I was like, eh, you know. So it's I it's, still it's have interesting. A nostalgic which poll. I still have a nostalgic bolt of that movement of the Rachmaninoff Festival. Because of Carl. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well that's but it's, but it's interesting, like, what will grip you and what won't yeah. on subsequent hearing. So it's really interesting to me that this that this one is the the thing that, like, grips you all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. like I said, for, for me, this piece might be the gateway mm-hmm. into into some other things for her. So that that's... It was, I'm, you know, I'm glad that you, that you brought this piece because it's always been a name that I'm like, yeah, I should, I should listen to her music and then I never do. And I mean, I honestly, I don't listen to a lot of music anymore. I listen to stuff for the podcast, which is why I wanted to do the podcast because it got me into listening to music again. Yeah. yeah. But I don't listen to a whole lot of music anymore. No, no, no. Part of part of the reason I chose this piece is like I couldn't think of a piece that I had heard that was written in the last like two years that really meant a lot to me because I don't spend a ton of time listening to that music. Like it's mostly heavy metal or things for my theory classes that I'm looking at, like pieces by uh, Kathleen Rogers. Or uh, Alfreda Andre, mm. or uh, Laura Netzel, like nineteenth-century female composers. Because I don't, I in my traditional theory classes, I try to not only talk about uh, Mozart, thank Haydn, you, Beethoven, and Robert Schumann. Thank and you. So, but uh, but but this piece, I I don't even remember. I feel like part of the reason it it has such a hold on me. Is because I just kind of stumbled upon it on YouTube, literally. Hmm. The same recording that that uh, that I sent Rob. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, we should we should mention who the performing forces are on this recording that we're using. That that would be good. It is um, Beatrice Rauchs, um, the is the pianist, and Vladimir Kazukar, and the Kiev Chamber Orchestra are the uh, conductor and the accompanying ensemble it's a fabulous recording. yeah i do i do like that recording a lot 
I like stumbled upon it literally in an airport and had this magical listening experience. And I think part of that, like having that amazing first bite of the piece goes a long way. Yeah. This is going back to what and- Andrew was saying at the beginning of the piece, like with other podcasts, like uh, I have a lot of qualms with perfect, this word perfect and a perfect piece. But it's very, I'm using it in a very subjective way. Like, to me, my experience with this piece has been ideal. The stars and, have aligned, yeah. And yeah. That, yeah. And, I th- and I think that it's important to uh, celebrate those kind of magical things when it comes to music. Because, in a way, like, we're just taking vibrations and organizing them in a way that creates something magical to some people and so when we hear it as a listener let's raise that up Mm. and i do there i've always loved this piece every time i've listened to it which is probably like 10 times since the first time i listened to it and some parts of it definitely feel slow to me because i know what's going to happen but it always pays off and i think that that kind of durability is really impressive particularly because sofia gabaldelina is such an amazing composer who more recently has continued to create such amazing music this is like that first glimpse at her 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 mastery of the art and uh i love that well I think that's a good place to end it. Yeah. I mean, agreed. Yeah. So, I mean, Garrett, thanks for bringing this piece to us. And again, welcome to the collective. Thank you very much. You all have to have the same response to all of my music from now on. (laughs) I have some news for you. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.